0: Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I am Kirk O'Bear. Wow, you are. I am John Birdsall. How are you, Kirk? I like saying it that way. I
1: am Kirk O'Bear. <laughs> <don't know>. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I, you I, know, you I just like say it the same way every time. Well, oh, I like that better than the announcer voice. Yeah, you the know. The, the 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was it was good in its time, but While you know. it lasts. I think I think it's good to over. maybe re- retire that bit. <laughs> so How are you enjoying the heat? I hate it. I love it. Oh, uh, okay. I love it. Most people are like you; they really <laughs> no, they they really enjoy the heat and they want to like move to a warm climate. And I'm like, no, I am not a fan.
0: I'm not also yeah, not I'll, a fan. I'll take like one day of fresh snow and then I've I've had it. You know, I'm just and I didn't always feel this way. I was the much like yourself, I was a four seasons kind of person. Well, you grew up in Buffalo, for God's sake, right? Exactly. But <laughs> I was also stationed in North Carolina for six years, and and talk about stifling heat, man! That is oh out of control. My, I know. My father, my father lived in South Carolina,
1: and uh, I would go visit. You know, at different times of the year, and the summer was just
0: unbearable. I just, I I couldn't even stand it. I did a Absolutely couple of training exercises it. in Biloxi, and. Uh, do you remember the movie Biloxi Blues that had a? Oh, I don't think know, I saw that. No, Matthew Broderick was <clears> in it, and uh, was talking about how hot it was, and it was hot. It was very, very hot. Um, but yeah, I just I, I'm developing an intolerance for the cold as I get older. I don't know why, but I will <laughs> tell you this: wearing wearing my suit and tie when it's this hot out is extremely uncomfortable. I really do not rush well.
1: That. The really fun part is when you walk even a short distance to court and you start off very fresh and then you arrive (laughs) in a puddle of sweat Uh, and, um, and you're just, yeah, it's,
0: it's not a good look um, or feeling. (laughs) So I had an interesting conversation the other day along the lines of walking outside and, you know, getting hot and that sort of thing. And, and it was a, a judge in one of the local counties in this area that uh, was just commenting on the fact that it appears to him anyway, that I'm getting very busy with having to drive around all over the state. And he was pretty disappointed because he was hoping that other judges would try and sort of keep this zoom thing going. And I have to agree that there are many reasons why that would be an ideal set of circumstances for uh, defendants, for defense lawyers, for witnesses, whatever, I mean, I know when we get into confrontation issues, we certainly, I certainly don't prefer to be appearing remotely. But for your routine things where, you know, just this week, for example, I mean, I know you know this because we talk about our schedules and we, you know, we coordinate our calendars together and everything like that. But I had to drive to two very remote counties for two very cursory hearings today. And it was mandatory that I I do that six hours of driving. You know, three hours there and three hours back just so that I showed up, you know, and I know I've said this before, but, you know, think about the impact on the environment if we're continuing to have all this unnecessary travel multiplied over and over again and compare that with how I think we all learned some very valuable lessons about what can be done effectively remotely. Um, and it's just disappointing that there are some judges that are going back to the old way, which essentially is a way of punishing a lawyer that isn't from the local area. Well, it's that.
1: And, um, they hate technology. Some older judges, they just, they just, no, they just, they don't want emails they would just, you'd have to print them off. I imagine their staff does. So, um, but it's funny you should bring this up because, um, just yesterday, actually, I had a conversation with the chief judge in Milwaukee County, <clears throat> um, who is a, uh, terrific judge. She's, um, uh, just a and uh, just a class act too, but um, but I uh, first I complimented her on how she handled everything because it was a very very difficult situation, particularly Milwaukee with forty eight branches to the circuit court there, but. <clears throat> But her attitude is um, she, you know, she did what I think chief judges in the different districts should be doing, which is soliciting from lawyers. What do you want? Mm -hmm. How do you want to how do you want to see this look? And she asked me that. And I said, "I I said, Judge, I actually love coming in person for substantive things. Mm-hmm. If I've got you know a motion hearing, I want to be there in person if i've got obviously a trial or or anything that's going to involve you know um meeting with the district attorney or you know having some sort of haggle over a legal issue or whatnot, I want to be there in person, but to schedule stuff to to just like you know give a status update, no. We can, because because her attitude was, and, and I don't know how widespread this is across the state, but her attitude was, we want to keep
0: doing as much Zoom as possible. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that is what I'm hearing from a lot of judges, and I, I think that's a good idea. But interestingly, on the same sort of subject, you know this, uh, earlier this week, the appellate courts in Wisconsin approved electronic filing of all motions, briefs, and Uh, Have done away with the arcane practice of filing 15 copies of an appellate brief in a certain. Oh yeah, I just (laughs) saw this across my across you know stapled in a certain way on the side on the edge and and uh, when (laughs) you the silly thing is that like if you file a motion for an extension uh, you you have to sign it. it. Yeah, well, you have to sign it with a with an actual pen, Pen, right? With a pen, yes. But you're allowed to fax it, but you, because you're supposed to file five copies, you actually have to fax it five times or, or copy it. I mean, it's so dumb. And I, I just this is something that I was pushing, you know, almost 20 years ago to try and bring, um, you know, the appellate courts up to speed with how our circuit courts. I mean, it took a while, but we're, we're all very used to electronic filing now. And it's it's actually wonderful. I love the fact that you can file something and the judge will have it in sometimes, you know, three minutes and you can be conducting business that way a lot quicker. But in the old days when you had to mail everything and heck, when I worked out at Barry Cohen's office way out in Elkhart Lake, you know, that involved making copies and then driving um, to, you know, about two miles to the actual post office where you're, you actually affix stamps and such, you know, to, to the envelopes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how it used to be. Well, but we, uh, I'm circuit sure courts. circuit court started adopting electronic filing for things quite some time ago. And that's been very, very efficient. And it made no sense whatsoever why the appellate courts wouldn't do that. And I suppose for a while, there were some uh, justices anyway on the Supreme court that like to have their you know, physical copy, but why 15? I mean, come on.
1: <laughs> I'm not even sure. If the, I'm not even sure it was the judges themselves, although it could have been, I actually have no information, but I do know that um, the people that run the electronic filing system in the director of state court's office, um, I think their vision always was to have universal e-filing throughout mm-hmm. The court system, and obviously we want to start with the circuit courts because that's the biggest deal. And um, and I have to say, and I don't know what your opinion is on this, but I think they've really done a very brilliant job. I really yeah. do. It's it's well, I, it's I think it's so, a absolutely. it's a it's a fantastic system. And um, I I've talked to lawyers in other states who either don't have any e filing or they have some like really clunky like hard to use like yeah. not not user friendly. Ours is. Uh, very user friendly. You know, I, I have a little question about the cost, uh, where you $20 yeah. per case to file. But yeah. to us, it's
0: not a big deal, but I think to a lot of people, it is. Um, right. You know, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people probably don't know, even know what we're talking about. But just so you do, listeners, um, how many years has it been now? Five, six, seven, something like that, where something like that, mandatory e filing, meaning that, you know, we don't deal with paper anymore. And when that was happening, it was right around the same time that. Most offices were becoming you know paperless, and we are relatively paperless right now. I mean, we have a paper file. I know you like to actually get your hands on it, but I, I'll go through an entire tri- you know, case from start to finish, uh, you know from the initial consultation all the way through trial, and I'll never touch a piece of paper. I have it all electronic I, I,
1: I love using you know all electronic versions of things, but I also enjoy getting my eyes off of screens. For a mm-hmm. while, mm-hmm. and making notations in the margins, and 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 you know for you know correcting somebody else's work or something, um, you know that's it's just it's it's just. You know, it's a strain to look at screens all day. I find
0: that the cases that I print off and read tend to be Supreme Court cases mostly because they're more complicated and they're more, you know, wordy, voluminous, et cetera. And you're right. I mean, if you can, you can absorb it better. But anyway, what we're talking about is that in our circuit courts, meaning in every county there is a circuit court. And that's where that's your trial level court in in, uh, every county. Uh, Lawyers, uh, the parties, let's say, um, have been allowed and then ultimately required to participate in this electronic filing process. And it's really just a website you go on similar to CCAP, but it's different. It's connected to CCAP and you can file pretty much anything. You can write a letter to the judge and you just upload it in a PDF format. And, and there you go. And it's made life a lot easier for a lot of people, but we do have to take a break and we'll be right back after these messages. And we are back with more legal defense with Kirk and John. <laughs> We made it safely through the commercial break. Yes, yes. Um I and, want to talk about gun violence. Can we do that? Um We're sure. I just I, I well,
1: you know, I I got I, I got to like um get another round here. A, another
0: magazine and just load up. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> click click. Mm-hmm. Um well, you know, it's it's a topic that I don't have the answers for and I I just think it's interesting to talk about because this is something that the law should, uh, you know, rightfully so have have the ability to impact public safety. I mean, that's one reason why we have laws. Um, and we're seeing, you know, I, I don't know if you can call it an epidemic. It feels like one because practically every day, I mean, even what this Thursday, there was another mass shooting, um, you know, a couple times, three times a week. It's, it's, it's getting ridiculous. um, and I don't know if these are copycat things or what's going on, but you know, as a society, if we, I feel like, you know, we talk about the right to health care, the right to free speech, the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure. What about, you know? What about like the right to be alive without somebody <laughs> doing it, you? Know, I mean, that's kind of important. Uh, it's kind of like the underlying everything. You know, um, nobody has the right to take life unless they're self-defending, you know, or castle doctrining or whatever. But uh, if I mind my own business and don't present a threat to anybody, I deserve to live. I mean, I I just feel that way. So (laughs) laws are supposed to address concerns like that. And I know that we're not very good at addressing, you know, a lot of societal problems because we we tend to try older methods that d- that don't work and haven't worked uh, you know such as utilizing mandatory minimums that is an outdated ridiculous concept well that, that was that was a ridiculous, ridiculous thing on its face and uh, with the
1: argument that that's going to deter people from committing other crimes and, you know, of course, drug crimes or violent crimes. And that's complete nonsense. There's no research to
0: back that up. Absolutely not. Just talk to any one of our clients <laughs> that have no idea how any of that works. I mean, yeah, no, someone's, that's before it's someone a, goes a political out there, game, they're going to beef up on the law and say, well, let's see, I could be subject to a mandatory minimum. That would be awful. So
1: on, on, on the subject of uh, gun violence, though, um, I think it's a broader discussion. And you start with the Second Amendment, uh, but you combine that discussion with the culture that evolved over the two centuries from, you know of the 1800s and the 1900s. Um, Uh, of just kind of a love of guns, right? And I don't know how much that that wasn't necessarily tied to the Second Amendment because really there was no significant Second Amendment Supreme Court decisions until the middle of the 20th century. Right. And, uh, but that said, it was always an assumption that if you lived (laughs) in the North American continent and what was rapidly becoming the uh, the United States, state after state after state, as we moved westward, um, that you had a right to have a gun, and not just a gun, but a lot of guns. And um, it was just kind of like an assumed thing. And, and it was a romantic thing, and it was a cool thing. And it was um, uh, something that um, was, I don't know, that people rallied around. And they didn't rally around it because of the Second Amendment. That, right. that that's a more recent
0: phenomenon. You know, it's, it occurs to me at times, not to interrupt, but I just want to interject this one thought that I've often had. You know, how would we deal with this issue if just, for example, hypothetically – the second amendment said the right to smoke tobacco products shall not be infringed by the states. I mean what would we be we, there would be a huge, you know, controversial debate about all this cuz people say of course, of course you can smoke and yes, of course we can smoke. But the point is that if it could be anything, you know, the right to wear a red shirt on Thursdays, you well, know, and defended
1: vehemently. Let's let's break down something here cuz the second amendment says the um, A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of the free people, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Okay, that's, that's the two clauses, the well-regulated militia and the right of the people um, are worked together. And, of course, um, Antonin Scalia and Heller in 2008, which is a Supreme Court decision, said that the primary part of that amendment is – the right of the people part. And, you know, there's you could make arguments about how language works and whether or not the militia was the predicate thing for the people to have them. But let's look back at, um, at what was really the impetus for that amendment in the first place. And it was that we didn't have a standing army. We, um, we were a young nation which was basically, you know, ripe for the picking by any number of countries. <laughs> you know, Spain could have swooped in, France, England might have tried. took another shot. They did in 1812, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that, so, and we were not strong. And so the only way we had to defend ourselves was use these state militias. Well, nobody wanted to have a standing army, even after the Constitution um, it was a very anti-war in. sort of because sentence. well they, we didn't want the centralized power so each state wanted to have their own militia primarily especially the southern states wanted to have that to um, uh, maintain their control on the slave trade and um, and and so uh, raising a militia was a big deal but the militia was your neighbor they were the farmers down the road they're right. the the shopkeepers. Well, I- and they
0: had to keep their. They had to have guns to be part of the militia. I've heard it and, described as one view. One view is that this is not so much a right as perhaps a duty. At the time, was how it was viewed. You know, a, a- well, there's 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 a
1: there's a lot to be said for that. In fact, in any human organized society, from you know the time we started having organized societies ten thousand years ago, um, there's there's a responsibility to the group to defend the group, the to protect good. to protect the group and the members of the group from like the you know back, back then it wasn't you know um, some <laughs> army it was uh it was you know bears and you know <laughs> <other> <laughs> wild animals so um but uh, and so this this um idea that, the Second Amendment is some holy shrine that was written by Jesus, or you know, whatever some people seem to have elevated it to, is is really a misnomer. And and I think that um, Justice, uh, well, the retired John Paul Stevens wrote an op-ed mm-hmm. about um, like get rid of it. <laughs> I think you wanted to eliminate the Second Amendment. Yes, right.
0: Because in a way, it is an antiquity. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, well, we do have a lot. Of- it causes a lot of, you know, confusion and angst in the, you know, in the Supreme court. I mean, it, because it's, it's an outlier. I mean, it's so specific, you know, or maybe it it isn't, you know, that's part of it was, it was,
1: it was important enough to include in the bill of rights at that time, because of the way we structured our defense as a nation. Now we have a very, very, very different nation now. And so, um, and so a lot of the originalists and textualists, are going to say, well, just because we're different now doesn't mean this document's different because it's
0: not. So we're going to interpret it the way it was originally meant to be. Well, you know, the the comedian that talks about how they were discussing the Bill of Rights. They're like, okay, we've got the Constitution taken care of. Now let's go through the Bill of Rights and let's go through what's most important. Some dude in the back goes, muskets. And he's like, all right, well, isn't free speech a little more important than that? Okay, that can be number one. But muskets, that's number two.
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know how quartering soldiers got into number three, but... Um, I know, I know.
0: <laughs> was that really that big a big deal? deal? It was a big deal in the day. And it was like, it was one of the things that they were most concerned about is, we got to have our muskets and you can't make us uh, give you a room for free, you know? <laughs> I don't know. But,
1: um, um, but, you know, I think that, unfortunately, the that love affair... Has turned into like almost mythic proportions, um, without a lot of grounding, and what that's created is this is this um, desire and flood of guns, uh, both legal and illegal. And if you notice, um, there's huge efforts by. Agencies all over the country, law enforcement agencies all over the country, get guns off the streets, blah 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 blah. What they're really talking about is um, take guns away from black people because you will never, you know, because on the exact at the exact same time those words come out, there's there's pronouncements by um, judges and legislators. I'm going to carry a gun into the courtroom. I'm going to carry a gun on the floor of the legislature. Exactly. I'm going to, you know, I mean, and so it's it's like. Um, uh, it, you know, but but if but if if uh, if black folks are carrying the guns, let's say they're at a George Floyd protest. Um, let me tell you, they're going to get taken down. You know, they're not going to get like complimented like Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. All right.
0: Good. Good point. Time for a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, y'all. We have re-arrived Wow. Are we down south now? Yeah. Yeah, y'all.
1: <laughs> I spent That's some time right, down south. <laughs> I worked for a summer in Arkansas, and um, oh, uh, what I remember most was um, I was there for like a week, just barely at that point, And I went to some fast food restaurant, ordered some food, paid it for it. Then you know how you move down the counter to to the pickup part, right? So, um, and the lady was obviously like thoroughly southern. And she's like, well, thank you. She's like, here's your change. Thank you. Come back. And I was walking away when she said, come back. And I was like. You thought she meant. And, I, and I literally turned around and said, walked right back in front of her.
0: <laughs> it Here took I am. me a little while. Took me a little while to she catch meant. on to the lingo. But, um, yeah. Well, I had my eyes open when I went into the Air Force because, um, you know, the culinary experience during basic training is is not memorable for its um, d- divine palate. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> that was, the, a very, that the, was a very I never heard of, of before. I mean, I didn't know what chicken fried steak was. Until I, you know, it was given to me and I was forced to eat it. Um, all kinds of things like that, you know, biscuits and gravy. I didn't never even heard of that. I was now, I grew up in Buffalo. And- they don't have biscuits and gravy in Buffalo. Now I, I think I can get behind good biscuits. Biscuits. And gravy. Oh yeah, I love them. They're, they're pretty but good. Yeah, saying, you know, being an eighteen-year-old yeah. kid, I really didn't know what was going on. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, getting back to this gun problem, I yeah. mean, I. I what I started off saying is that it would appear that there could be a way to utilize our laws. If the laws are supposed to do what they are designed to do, if they're effective in any way at being sort of the bedrock or the foundation upon which we build our society um, as a nation of laws, what can we do now? I'm sure you heard about uh, a little earlier this week, there's a proposal by a mayor, I believe somewhere in California not, you know, not a legislature, but they're talking about some kind of ordinance. I don't know how this would work, but to make owners of all guns within that municipality financially liable for any death caused by any gun. Um, Where was this? This is somewhere in California, and, and wow, and uh, I don't know the details of it because it just kind of was being talked about earlier this week, and. I think the controversy is a little louder than the the actual point of whatever the law that might be. But you remember way back in, the, I think, the late 80s, early 90s, there was a push that gained quite a bit of momentum That where there was an effort to make gun manufacturers uh, go bankrupt because of the lawsuits um, alleging the creation of a reckless instrument that was – capable, designed for only one reason, which is to kill people. You know, they all fizzled eventually, but there had been many, many suits that were brought against. And then part of it had to do with, uh, you know, jurisdictional things. So that kind of leads into my next point that I wanted to make. And and I know that there, just earlier this week, there has been uh, a bill uh, put before the uh, our state Senate that would accomplish two things if passed and it probably will pass. The first is um, what looks like an encouragement for there to become a firearm manufacturing industry solely within the state of Wisconsin. I, I have to admit, I'm not, I don't believe that there is one, but there may in fact be one. I mean, there may, there may be some firearm company that makes constructs firearms with all within our state from parts within our state, et cetera. Um, I I don't know, though. I haven't heard of that. But as you know, as you know, that's going to quickly
1: be interpreted as affecting interstate commerce.
0: Right. But and the the law is trying to are a local state law is trying to supersede those requirements or those jurisdictional um, ties that are commonly found in federal law. And it's even addressed as a Second Amendment right? you know, as it relates to the states. Okay, this is really interesting. Um, So the first part of the law would require that any firearm um, that's manufactured in Wisconsin has to bear a stamp or similar marking that says made in Wisconsin. And if that is the case, here's the kicker. After the original manufacture of the firearm, aftermarket additions, like, say, for example, I don't know, bump stocks, uh, render it still outside the commerce stream that would render it within the Commerce Clause power of the federal authorities, even if you've added something that did travel in interstate commerce as an accoutrement or an aftermarket addition to the gun. Now, I don't know how. They're just saying. They're just pronouncing.
1: So, so how, how, how is this helping to Reduce um, gun carnage.
0: Not at all. What, what okay. If, okay, the two things that it's trying to, well, I will, I will give you a hint. It's being sponsored by a Republican with a bunch of other Republicans backing it. So, um, but again, okay. I mean, the, 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 there, there is one apparently beneficial aspect of this is if it encouraged an actual firearm industry to grow, as a business prospect in Wisconsin, there would be an advantage to that and people would buy it for this reason. I don't agree with it, but you know, I'm just saying that, that may, there may be like a fiscal economic aspect of this. Now, here's where it gets confusing because the second part of this bill relates to a prohibition on public officials, anybody holding any office, and anybody exercising any authority uh, whatsoever – Uh, A prohibition of enforcing any federal law, uh, statute, regulation, et cetera, that comes in conflict with the provisions that that we're creating as sort of this, you know, um, they're calling it like a Second Amendment sanctuary. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So, which is really bizarre. And I think this thing is going to pass. But let's say, for example, you're the sheriff. And by definition, you cannot under this law enforce any um, federal law that is in conflict with the enhanced gun rights that are created by other parts of this same bill. So basically, and this is what it says. If you're legally entitled to, to own a firearm or possess a firearm, nothing else can result in it being taken away from you. So forfeiture provisions um, on the federal level and state level are basically they're proposing that those go away. So well, I, I don't know what they're going to do about the supremacy of federal law, but um, well, right, right, right. Uh, it's just an attempt to bypass it in some weird way. And, and I think the way that they, they tried to narrow in on it is saying, well, this is really, we're going to have these guns that are only made in Wisconsin and, and not anywhere else. So it's, it's basically inviting a whole lot of nasty litigation for one thing, but also this, this thing where there's like, they created a new crime. They will. If it passes, it'll create a new crime. It'll be a misdemeanor for a public official to enforce a federal law if it results in in uh, loss of possession of a firearm from someone under other state laws that is entitled to keep it. So crazy stuff. But uh, yeah, well, and you're right. That does nothing to curb gun violence. And, I, you know, look, uh, we've what, been tampering with all kinds of things around the edges with mental health um, you know, regulations and all that. I think, I think we, there's two things, I think, to get
1: to the heart of the issue. One is to declare gun violence as a critical and preventable public health problem, number one. And number two is to hold the gun industry accountable and ensure that there's some oversight over the marketing and sale of both guns and ammunition. Did you know that 5% of gun dealers sell 90% of the guns used in crimes? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I you can know, see them being sold at the you know at the county fair. <laughs> well, that's that's even that's that's even outside of the licensing
1: scheme, you know, like where you have um, just gun shows and whatnot. So mm-hmm. there's all this resistance to any sort of you know what they view as like gun registration or national national thing. Um, uh, it is is, is an irrational fear, in my opinion. Um, you know, they're trying to take our guns away. It's like, okay, nobody's nobody's taking your guns away. We we just want to know how many there are, and we want to have some sort of ability to ensure some gun safety rules. You know, and because gun control is like a taboo term, but gun safety rules, um, and and to enhance. This desire to deal with this public health problem, um, and it's uh, you know people, you know we obviously notice the mass shootings because they're spectacular, right? But um, a lot you know, of regular shootings. So there's a lot of regular shootings, and and, and here's the, news here's the, news, here's the know, thing is, here's the thing is, nobody keeps track of those. Nobody keeps track of how many police oh shootings there are. No, no, nope. the Washington Post does. Yeah, but no, there's no government,
0: um, statistical well, I, I, analysis of you this. Know, you know, you remember what happened in Las Vegas with the dude that had, yeah, the, I mean, what I would think something like that. Well, oh gosh, I remember back when Columbine should have been the thing that woke everybody up to, like, what the heck are we dealing with here? But then you've got this Las Vegas massacre. I mean that, you know. I don't even know if that's in the, at the top, you know, in the top of everyone's mind anymore. And then, you know, Sandy Hook and all these other things that Sandy happened. Hook, Sandy Hook is the one that just blew me away because yeah. little
1: children. I mean, yeah. little. They're six years old. They're first yeah. graders. You know,
0: we got to take a break. So, okay. So all hold, hold that thought about the little sixth graders, and we we'll- okay.
1: We are back. Um, so when we left, we were talking about. Um, what wakes people up? Well, does killing massive numbers of children that are just innocently in a class, uh, does that do it? Because you would think it would. Because I remember that incident very, very clearly. I think I believe it was like 2011, 2012. And um, um, And and i remember it's like oh there's no way that the nra is going to come out with you know some well, you need a good guy with a gun that's the only thing that handles a bad guy with a gun or you know it's like they can't do that with this a bunch of children being shot well sure enough they can and they did and um uh they have they they have successfully bottled up every attempt to um, get our arms around the scope of the problem number one or do anything about it you know well, I, I have
0: some questions for you on those along yeah. those lines and I just I'm asking you because you're a smart person and I respect you um, but seriously I know that just in my study of history over the course of my life we can attribute just about every tragic decision made by you know a political entity, whether it be a president or a dictator or whatever, um, can be attributed to fear of either a perceived opponent enemy or perhaps just the unknown. That's how practically every war has been started. Um, that's how invasions of countries occur not because of a you know an outright desire to grab land, but because of to try and get make the first strike so that the other side, anticipating the other side is going to do a, B and C. That's, that's always the explanation, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that was, that was even Hitler's explanation. It was a defensive maneuver to capture Poland and Belgium and so on. Um, So my question is this, um, I understand that the NRA has had this sort of slippery slope approach to everything. And that if we let them pass a law limiting, you know, this, particular circumstance of ownership or registration or record keeping or waiting periods or whatever the case may be, that it will lead to further infringements. And ultimately it will lead to the day where they all take our guns away. Right. I mean, that is their mantra. Now, all of that depends upon uh, a continual flow of money to continue Uh, ramping up that message and it goes in a circle. The the people that donate money to the NRA for the purpose of them making those points and and providing that type of resistance are basically, you know, informally, or maybe even formally lobbying on behalf of candidates that will share a similar value. And it goes in a circle, like, you know, it just goes over and over again. Mm -hmm. So the money flows from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And they all have this shared group of values, some of which has to do with firearms, but a lot of it doesn't. Right? It has to do with where who can, who can generate funds because the name of the organization has the word rifle in it, and who can uh, send those funds to people that know uh, if they sing the right song, they'll be able to fund their campaign with very healthy uh, amounts of contributions coming in. Um, I hope I'm not sounding a little too pessimistic here. But uh, am I correct that uh, I've heard recently that the NRA is all but uh, defunct financially? Well, here's what
1: happened. And then I want to make a point about taking our guns away, Uh, make a historical point about that. So so what's happened, Letitia James, who's the attorney general in New York State, um, brought uh, an action to disband the NRA, which is incorporated in New York State. And so, um, without getting into the details of what happened there, it had to do with a lot of financial fraud. Um, uh, Wayne LaPierre was living the high life. Let me tell you, he was, he was taking all these European trips with his wife on the dime of the, you know, it was just pure fraud is what it was. Anyways, they. They then declared bankruptcy in a bankruptcy court in Texas, and declared that they were then going to incorporate in Texas. And the bankruptcy judge has <laughs> completely yeah. dismissed it. He's like, like this yeah. is an obviously lame, pretextual attempt well, that's, to yeah, that's not bankruptcy know. per se. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the state of affairs right now. They're back in, you know, uh, uh, the New York. Um, disbandment, I guess, effort, uh, and, and and I don't know if there's going to be. This is going to turn to a criminal case. I don't know. I mean, the the uh, Trump investigation started out civil with that office and is now a criminal case. So I don't know where they're going to go with that. But um, they're in serious trouble, um, and and it's all their own doing. It's, it's sort of like um, you know, power corrupts, and they got a lot of power and they got a lot of money and people started taking advantage of that and you start to get a lot of money and money is fun and, you know, and you think, figure, you figure you're t- you're untouchable and you can get away with anything, you know? Um, because best. look, look at all the, look at all the bullets they dodged, so to speak with um, all these mass shootings and they still came back and, you know, sold more guns and got more money.
0: I'm waiting for the day when I hear somebody that has an actual, proposal that can solve the problem, but I, I, I rack my brain constantly and I can't come up with anything. So but we're running, so, we're getting short on time on this segment and there's no, one thing that I definitely want to talk about okay. before we run out of time. Cause we're getting close. Uh, should Facebook continue to ban former president Trump from having an account? So, Perhaps first we should just examine
1: where they're at now because Facebook has this fantastical new creation they call their Supreme Court. So it, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's it. It, no. That's <laughs> literally what like the, the colloquial name for it. But I think it's like the, the Facebook Oversight Board or something like that. They're well, like, and they, a, they brought people in to create a like a buffer zone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so what they do is they examine removals by Facebook, and Facebook has pledged they're a private company. They don't have to do anything, right? They're, they mm-hmm. they've pledged to follow whatever this court says. So. Trump gets after the January sixth um, invasion. Uh, Trump gets banned from Facebook, and uh, gets appealed to this Supreme Court. And their recent ruling was that um, they basically punted. They said they said yeah, we're, the ban was justified, but we really didn't like the way Facebook did it. But we're gonna like revisit this in two years, which is conveniently you know a year before the next presidential. Election, so um, if you're asking me, should Trump be off Facebook? Um, the answer is yes. Uh, I've really enjoyed the last six months of, of I've I've just a lot less stressed, not uh, having well, to listen to the 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 ramblings of an insane
0: person. On okay, let, know, me, let that, me just let me interge- interject here yeah. because the only reason I agree with you is because of the first thing you said, and that is because Facebook is a private company. However. It, it is subject to, like, most significant industries such as the airline industry or um, the railroads. I mean, there's federal regulation that impacts all of this, and much like any anything that has, is on that broad of a basis, there's an argument that there, there can and should be. Some sort of um, federal involvement with how these things are run, and that implicates. I'm not going to say that someone has a, a you know a, a right to free speech in that context of a private company because that's been litigated long ago, and it's just not true that somebody does not have a right to have any Facebook account under it. Well,
1: any, the, the bigger thing happening. is, that I think what you're driving at is Section 230. Uh, Section 230 basically says uh, of the um, – what's the name of that law? The Electronic Communications Act or something like that? Right. Right, right. So um, uh, the the section says those companies, Facebook, Twitter, you fill in the blank, they are not liable for what people put on their sites. Right. And I always – I mean, long before this erupted as an issue, I always thought thought that was a stupid, idiotic thing to do, although – in the beginning i could understand the rationale because the rationale was this is a young budding thing we want to encourage its growth if we're just going to get them crushed with lawsuits they'll never grow and its innovation I, you know you can make a you can make a plausible argument at that point but but to say now, I agree that there's room and a need for some serious regulation. I I, I don't know what that looks like. I That can get political really fast.
0: It does, and that's that's where I think there's really should be no court involvement whatsoever. Uh, you know, if you're looking at what's right and wrong in this situation and the implications it could have, um, just in general. I mean, the idea of taking away someone's ability to to use and communicate whatever message they wish, no matter how offensive, um, it, it is offensive to me. I, I don't like the idea of suspending someone's Facebook account um, in general, no matter who it is, because the, the ability to convey that message, whatever it is. But that's all based on the assumption that we as citizens are smart enough to know when someone's ridiculous and foolish and lying. But I don't know if that's true anymore. So, I, you know well, what I
1: mean? It's, it, this goes back to the false information society, which we're not going to have time to get into now. But we should probably dedicate the yeah. whole show to that. Because well, we are
0: we're ra- wrapping it up right now, as a matter of fact. So we're gonna I
1: know. I know. So, that's why I think it's probably a good place to leave it. So, um, But, yeah, we'll have, we'll, we'll have to really do a deep dive on uh, ferreting out false information out of the, the mainstream without killing right. legitimate debate. Correct. That
0: would be quite a quite an issue. That if we could solve that. Now we've we this to, up. We might have to get a Pulitzer Prize or something like that. Oh know. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to order one. Yeah, order one. Put both our names on it when you get it off of uh, Amazon, would you? Please? Exactly. All right. Exactly. That's all we have for this week. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on thirteen thirty and one hundred one point five WHPL. It's been Legal Events with Kirk and John. Have a great. Day.
1: Have a great one.